0: Welcome to everybody's favorite service of the day, the 9.30 service. As as you've been told, we're uh, running into some growing pains again, and we're absolutely delighted about it. We have three services, 8, 9.30, and 11. Come anytime you want to any of those services. We even have a few gluttons for punishment. Uh, One guy has got in touch with me and said, I watched online and I liked it so much I came to hear it in person. I thought, Wow. I preached the sermon three times, and I didn't even like it that much. That was that was exceedingly kind. My point is, we're happy that you're here whenever you can come, but if your schedule is flexible and you're coming anyway, uh, we would love to make room for people at 930 by you, one of some of you at least attending 8 or 11, just because, as you can see, we still have a few chairs, but the parking is bedlam out there, ladies and gentlemen. Bedlam. And Well, more about parking at churches in a moment, but let's remember, let's be Christians all the way through the day, okay? (laughs) On your way in and on your way out. The first year I was here as pastor, I got a very kind letter admonishing me to ask people in the congregation to not make certain gestures at passerby as they left the church on Sunday morning because it didn't portray who we actually were as Christians. I can't agree any more strongly than I actually do with that sentiment, so I'm just telling you on the front side, a lot of people here this morning were delighted that you're all here. Let's be Christians from bell to bell, shall we? That's actually what we're talking about this morning. If you'll open your Bibles with me in 1 John chapter 1 and just hold your place, I need to show you some things about God and things about ourselves as Christians. A long, long time ago now, my wife and I were approved as missionaries of this church. And in our little tribe of churches, missionaries don't usually have much individual support. They raise their support by traveling across the country to any church that will give them opportunity to meet with the church in a worship service and present the field. You've seen our missionaries do that many times. Sometimes they're here reporting on work that we're already supporting. Other times they're here to present to us the vision that God has given them for the future and invite us to be financial partners and prayer partners with them. It's an exhausting way to raise support, but it really builds your faith. In our case, we were very fortunate. We did it quickly in that context. We raised our support in 15 months. And traveled from coast to coast. And many churches save money, churches that live in reasonably priced areas where property is actually affordable, save money by hosting missionaries by dedicating part of their building or buying some little house or some little apartment somewhere which becomes a missionary apartment. The very first place we stayed was at a church in Springfield, Missouri where they had Remodeled a really nice, made a really nice little studio apartment out of what used to be a Sunday school room. There was only one problem with this setup. The lights in the whole building were controlled elsewhere. <laughs> and whoever got a hold of the switch did not seem to know that missionaries were actually in the apartment. And I was on my way down. It was and I could tell why they chose this Sunday school room. It was kind of in a difficult place to reach, kind of through maze-like, uh, a maze-like hall. I got lost. I'm easily lost. I got lost trying to find it a couple times. And I was literally—I don't want to fall off this this platform—but I had one foot at the beginning of some pretty steep stairs leading down to the bottom floor when somebody somewhere cut off all the lights. And I didn't know that the world could be that dark. Um, I mean, it was so dark, I couldn't see anything. So I kind of precariously, cartoonishly perched at the top of the stairs, decided probably not a good idea to try to make it down my stairs. I can't find my way in the daytime. Who knows what happens if the lights are out? And sure enough, I hit my head on a couple things, trying to get back to my room, which I could not find. And this is before we all had a flashlight in our pockets, so I'm kind of stuck actually, and I'm developing kind of an absurd scenario. And what I ultimately ended up doing was deciding that the safest thing to do was to get down on all fours so that I couldn't trip or fall. And here I am, a grown man and a father of one, crawling down a church hallway, putting one hand out. Would have looked ridiculous had somebody turned the lights on at that moment. That's what it's like to be in darkness. And we live with so much light pollution that it's rarely ever dark here. I don't know if you've noticed. If anybody's ever been to Carlsbad Caverns, I don't know if they still do this, but they take you down into the depths of the caverns and at a very specific place where they put everybody together and give you full warning, in the bottom of Carlsbad Caverns, they turn the lights off. And it's terrifying. It is inky darkness. You are so quickly lost and disoriented. Why am I telling you all this? Because John is going to begin to talk to us about ourselves as Christians, where every Christian should start thinking about himself. John actually begins not with people, he begins with God. I want to show you what he told us in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And look in verse 5 with me. John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We're in a short series working our way through this letter, and last week I tried to explain to you that John, in specific answer to the first religious cult that contradicted Christianity, explained in the first paragraph of 1 John that his knowledge of Jesus was quite real. That John was not someone who had been told anything about Jesus. John actually knew Jesus. He saw him, he says repeatedly. I heard him. I had my hands on him. The life, the miracles, the ministry of Jesus are entirely real. And having established the reality of the person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and begun to hint at the fact that these Gnostics who were a very special religious group who claimed to have secret knowledge of God known only to them and were spiritually superior to the point of sinlessness, now John begins to contradict those claims and explain to Christians then and now how they should actually live. And he begins, as I told you, by talking about God. This is the message we have heard from him. In other words, this isn't new. These are the very things we've heard from Jesus. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is, what's it say there? Light. And in him is no darkness at all. Now, let me ask you a question. Give it good thought. Is the news that God is light good news or bad news? Did you hear a little disagreement in there? I think almost everybody said good news, and of course, you're right. We would have to ask ourselves first what John may have actually specifically meant when he said that God is light, but the first thing he wants us to see is this very clear affirmation that God is light, and whatever that means, he goes on to say, there is no darkness in God at all, no darkness whatsoever. In fact, a literal translation of what John wrote here, because he didn't write in English, he wrote in Greek. Sounds like this. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness, none at all. Now, why do I say that? Because Greek grammar, and you can look it up on the Internet. Please don't do it now. Um, I'm doing my best to keep your attention. You can check me later. Greek grammar has the unusual capacity of being able to stack negative words on top of each other if you really want to deny something. We don't do that in English. We call it a double negative, and we teach children not to use them. I don't have no toys. Bad English. Not so in Greek. So, in John's language, it really does sound like this. God is light, and in him there is no darkness, none at all, none whatsoever. What did he mean by that? Well, remember, John has been shaped by the Hebrew Scriptures. John is a Jewish believer, He's not speculating like these philosophically, spiritually minded Gnostics. He's not making stuff up. He's being informed by Scripture, what your Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, have told him about God. And I think in John's mind, based on his reliance on Scripture, God is light means at least two things. First of all, God's illuminating presence. You may remember when God was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt at night, He guided them in a manifestation, a miracle of a pillar of fire. They can see where they're going. They can see the danger in the wilderness ahead. And most importantly, they can look up at that column of fire in the sky and know that is our God making Himself known. That is a manifestation of His presence. Not only is He showing us the way, He's showing us the way because He's with us but i think what people put together even if they aren't very well familiar with the old testament is that john what john especially meant is not just that god is with people showing them reality and showing them himself but that god is perfectly holy that his justice his righteousness his integrity is not just superior it's absolute and one of the things the Gnostics did is deny that sin existed at all. They believed that they themselves specifically, because of their enlightenment, because they understood that they as spirit beings were pure and out of, out of the reach of darkness and death and sin, that they understood everything and everyone in a way that was superior to everybody. Everybody. And the Gnostics specifically believed that because of their enlightenment, they could literally be sinless. And if challenged about sexual immorality or lying or conniving or defrauding or stealing from people, their out was, well, the body does those things, but the body was made by this dark, evil force. What really matters is the spirit, and my spirit is pure. And that teaching permeates Western society all the way to these 2000 years later what does that sound like someone will do something objectively horrible to the point of being rightly imprisoned for the terrible things they've done and they will sit at a mic and say that's not me that's not who I am i'm not denying i did it but that's not who i am The first thing that John wants you to see before he begins to talk about you and me, he wants you to see God. And the big question is this. If God knows everything about everyone all the time and shares in none of their sin, but is utterly and completely separate from it, how are the likes of us supposed to spend any time with him? Let me explain. Because people are often upset when they hear Christian pastors, they hear Bible teachers talking about sin, holiness, righteous judgment. Big turnoff. Nobody wants to hear that. If I were running to become a criminal court judge, okay, let's envision that. It's not going to happen, I'm not going to law school probably couldn't get through. I mean, there's just a lot of reasons for even me never to be a judge over anybody. But for the, for the sake of this thought experiment, I'm trying to get your vote so that I can become a criminal court judge. And I, on the front side, I'm going to tell you, yes, I'm going to deal with a lot of felonies, and here's my campaign promise. Vote for me, and they all go free. <laughs> I'm a good guy. I'm a loving guy, I'm a merciful guy, so I promise you this, I don't care who they are and what they've done, they show up in my courtroom with video and a verbal confession that they make, and even if they tell me they're proud of it, they're all walking out, free men. Everybody's leaving my courtroom acquitted. Would you vote for me? No. Why? You want justice for others. Here's the fog-cutting question. If everyone in this church knew everything you'd ever thought, said, or did, would you come to church next Sunday? I wouldn't. Where's Bruce? People found out. Where'd he go? He wouldn't say. He just said he had to leave. How was that? God is Light. There is no shadow side to him. There are no secrets with God. He's actually spiritually transparent. He is everything he says he is, and he is that way righteously and perfectly all the time with no variation whatsoever. He doesn't have good and bad days. He is simply permanently good in every possible way. Everything that your conscience tells you is a virtue is a reflection of the fact that God made you. And John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And the hard, heavy question is this. If we are sinful, and don't waste any time saying not as bad as the next guy. I, I'm not saying I haven't done anything wrong. I've heard that in prison so many times. Listen, I'm not saying that I haven't done wrong, but let me tell you, some of the guys that are in here, and they're right. But they won't answer to God for what another man or woman did. Each one of us will stand before God on our own. And the question is, how can we walk in the light of God? If God is light and we are not, if God is sinless and righteous and pure and just and perfectly, absolutely holy, and we even in jest have to admit, based on what we know about ourselves, if everybody knew the truth about me, I couldn't look anybody in the face not at my church, not in my family, not at work, not at school. If people knew the truth about me, I would have to go into hiding. God knows all about it, and God shares nothing of it. He's not like that. He's not dark. He's not shadowy in the slightest. What John is inviting his readers and us 2,000 years later as his contemporary readers is to know who God is and amazingly to walk with him. To have fellowship with Him. To have a deep loving partnership. To have a face-to-face friendship. To relate to God at perfect peace with God as our loving Father. And know that we are at peace with Him and we enjoy Him and He loves and enjoys us. And how in the world is any of that possible if He's holy and light and we are sinful and shadowy? That's what First John wants to show us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Listen to him dig into the Gnostics. This is a direct answer to the Gnostics, but it's also a fog-cutting question for people who claim to be Christians. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness we what? Why? Because if God is light, and we are with Him, we won't be in the darkness. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. It's interesting. I thought he might have said we have fellowship with God, which is also true, but he says no. If we… Walk in the light as He is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And here's a beautiful blessing. The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, now who did that? The Gnostics did. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. How can ordinary sinful people walk with God? The first and the most important truth that John communicates, the truth that will take The bulk of the time I have left in this message and the most important thing that you must learn and practice if you're going to walk with a God who is holy, we agree with God about our sin. The first necessary thing without which there will never be fellowship with God is sinful people must agree with God about their sin. In other words, as John has told us in at least three different verses, we don't deny sin, we confess it. Look back in the paragraph and you'll see what I mean. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If you claim that sin has nothing to do with you, John says the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to fool yourself. Make God out to be a liar and your whole life is going to be the contrary of what you claim that it is. You're going to claim that you have fellowship with God, that you are close to God, and meanwhile you're in darkness the whole time. People who actually know God and are close to Him can only be close to Him and can only know Him if they agree with Him about the fundamental difference between God and us, we sin, God does not. God is light and there is no darkness in Him at all. No, none whatsoever. My favorite verse perhaps in the New Testament that comforted me from the time I became a junior higher and all of those insecurities and all of that self-accusation and all of those fears, I found First John chapter 1 verse 9 and it's fed my heart and given me courage ever since. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The key word here is confess. I'm going to study a few Bible words with you this morning, and here's the first one. Confess literally means to say the same thing. Confessing, confession is not Admission confession in Greek literally means to say the same thing. It's a compound word that literally means when you confess a sin, you say the same thing about it that God would, and that's rare. Let's just bring it into the level of our relationships, friendships, or if you've got some guts and grit this morning, let's talk about marriage, okay? One spouse offends the other, what does reconciliation look like sorry hey listen if there's anything i said if there's anything you said my wife asked me just last night thank god we were just we were just playing it's just it wasn't serious but she said do you know why that was wrong and i said i know it was wrong she said yeah but do you know why i like Ugh maybe. Um, (laughs) Ignorance, selfishness, cruelty, what, what was it this time? See, often we give offense and we're not even sure what to say about it. The word confession in Greek literally means that you say the same thing about your sin that God does. That's not common in our world. People hold press conferences and say, that doesn't represent me. Those are not the values I espouse. I've grown in the last three days. (laughs) Since I publicly destroyed myself and my reputation, I've learned so much in the last 72 hours. In friendship and in marriage, on the job. You ever have anybody on your job stab you in the back and come to you and say, I stole your idea and made you look bad in front of our bosses? I did that. I did it on purpose because I was looking out for me. I stopped caring about you. And I'm just here to tell you that was completely wrong. It was cruel and reckless. And I'm terribly sorry. And I hope you can find it in your heart to forgive me. Anybody ever have a conversation like that? No. Most people can't be at peace with God Because the most they will do with God is grudgingly admit that there might have been something wrong. Confession literally means to say the same thing. The good news of the gospel in the letter of 1 John is that though God is light, he also makes a second beautiful announcement. We can walk with God who is light because God is also love. God has provided the means by which we can be forgiven. We can walk with God who is light, who sees everything, who knows everything, who is perfectly righteous because God is not only light. 1 John also goes on to announce that the same God who sees everything and does everything perfectly is not only light, he is also love. Read 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 through 12 with me. It's right on your handout. Please read this with me. First John chapter 4, 7 through 12. Right off the handout please so we can all read the same scripture. John wrote, "Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love." God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Write this down, and I'll show you where all this comes from next. Because God is not only light, because God knows better than we're willing to admit how holy He is, the fact that God is also utterly and entirely love, God does wonderful things for the people He loves. What sorts of things? Well, God forgives us. God cleanses us, and amazingly, God the Father gives us His own Son as our advocate. The first burden that John has in this paragraph that I'm reading to you, and it is by far the most important part of the section, from this, since this is true, then John is going to say, if all this is true, now act on it. If this is who God is and this is what God has done for you, now you just walk it out. You do what is natural and right based on the way God is and the things that God has done for you. But the first thing that John wants us to do is to deal with our sin, which comes not from minimizing it, not from denying it, not to claiming not to have it, not by saying that it was, yes, I can see how you would think that was wrong, but my intentions were right. Spare me. We wouldn't be having this conversation if there weren't some relational break, if there weren't something between us. God doesn't want any of that. He doesn't want explanations, rationalizations, or minimizations. What God requires for men and women to walk with Him is agreement with Him. John cares deeply about sin. Look at 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In other words, just the fact that God is going to fully and completely forgive you, you can depend upon that because it says that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But don't take that casually. Don't bank on the fact that you will keep offending God and denying Him and reviling Him and just keep running back for more and more grace and more and more forgiveness. No, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But then this beautiful sentence, don't miss it, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the, what's it say? The Righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What John is announcing here is that because God has love, God has provided with enormous generosity for your sin to be dealt with. If you will merely agree with God about your sin, He'll cleanse you. He'll clean you. He'll give His Son in your place. This means that the righteousness of the advocate removes the sin of the guilty. There's an interesting word here that we've heard twice, once in the reading in chapter 4 and then in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. My goodness, what a word. You ever heard it outside of church? In fact, if you don't read these passages specifically, you won't even hear it in church. It's a very rare word, and not all of your Bible translations have it because it's such a technical and special word. Some of your translations say an atoning sacrifice, and that's a good translation, but let me tell you why this translation and a few others that stick as closely as they can to the original language kept this word that people hardly understand in place. It's a legal term. And any discipline develops very specific terms so that everybody knows exactly what we're talking about. If the subject matters, people develop terminology around it so that everybody knows exactly what we mean. And propitiation means two things at once. It means that sin is forgiven, that it has been utterly cleansed, that all of your unrighteous deeds have been taken away, not merely ignored, but some other Bible terms, covered, paid for, washed away, all of your sin is gone. It's as if it never occurred. It also means, and this is the contribution that propitiation makes, not only that sin is forgiven, but that God's righteous anger is turned away from us and directed instead to our substitute. Who's our substitute? Jesus, who willingly went to the cross. Who suffered all of your temptations and all of mine. Every shameful thing I've ever done and thought Jesus faced in some manner as a temptation. Every category of human sinfulness, every way a man or a woman can go wrong, Jesus was tempted with that sin, but Hebrews announces he was tempted without sin, and he offers his righteousness in place of mine. That's why the judge can say that not only am I free to go, I'm actually acquitted. He gives me the righteousness of my own advocate. Jesus speaks eternally in His resurrection. He speaks to the Father on your behalf even now. You're loved by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father sent the Son. The Son died for your sins. The Son even now advocates and prays for you, and the Holy Spirit gives you the life of Christ that Christ died to give you. That's how sure you are. No wonder, John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but here's some encouragement. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He's the sacrifice that covers our sin and turns God's righteous anger away from our sin and directs them instead to the man who agreed to die for us on the cross. And He not only did that for us, He did that for the whole world, which means that the love that saved us can also save others. There are people sitting here right now who remember your previous selves. You remember your BC self, your before Christ self? Aren't you amazed what God has done? Don't ever be Gnostic enough to climb up on your high horse and look down on somebody and think that there's no hope for them because the same gracious, merciful love that pursued you and brought you in can also track them down and bring them into the family of God. Agreeing with God about our sin requires deep, contrite humility, and it should keep you humble for life to know that you have been loved in this way. That's the first and the best and the longest thing I have to explain to you this morning, that we walk in the light. We stay out of the darkness. We avoid our old life, which is always near us and always hunting us by simply agreeing with God about our sin. What else? Let's keep reading. It gets a lot simpler from here. Verse 3, And by this we know, that we have come to know him if we, what? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Wouldn't John have been an amazing friend? He's not the kind of friend that mints his words. The Bible says that the, wo- the wounds of a friend, the wounds that a friend give you are faithful wounds. In other words, they're good for you. He's keeping a promise to you. John's very clear cut. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, which the Gnostics did, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In other words, Jesus has come into the world. The light of God and the face of His Son, Jesus Christ, has been shining in this world. We can see clearly now. And what that means is this. Simply, church, everything I just read you just boils down to this. People who agree with God about their sin then start obeying Jesus. Simple as that. If He was right about our sin, if He died for our sin, if He is even now our present loving, faithful friend and advocate, we not only agree with Him about our sin, but we agree to obey Him now. This old but new commandment that John has been talking about is a very simple but humbling thing. It means that we love our fellow Christians. That's what he's talking about. Verse 7, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. In other words, I'm not bringing anything new to you. I'm just reminding you about something Jesus said. What was it that Jesus said? John 13, verse 34. Read this with me, please. Jesus speaking now. He said, A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's John 13. If you're not very familiar with the gospel of John, the number of the chapter may escape, may escape you. It may not seem meaningful to you, but I want to remind you, John 13 is the last supper. John 13 is where Jesus washes his disciples' dirty feet. John 13 is the last time he has with them what He begins to teach them there that continues for the next several chapters until He's arrested, this is His final message. He has demonstrated love in a way that was shameful to them. Because when the disciples walked into the upper room to celebrate their final Passover with Jesus, which Jesus then turns into a Christian ceremony and said, I've wanted to do this with you. And here's what's really happening we're celebrating tonight God's forgiveness of our ancestors so many years ago. I'm making you a new promise that I'm going to keep with my body and with my blood. And not only am I going to die for you soon, I'm going to wash your feet tonight. On that kind of humble behavior, Jesus says, Here's my new instruction for you. It's like a coach gathering his team. Everybody listening? Have your attention? Listen, here's a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. In other words, willing to act like your servant and on my way to die for you. In that kind of way, you also are to love one another. My question for you, do you see in our broader society Christians loving each other this way? Eh. I'll say two things that are both true. In our church, I see it every day. In broader society, I see a lot of judgment, a lot of division, a lot of anger, a lot of canceling, a lot of behavior that doesn't speak at all of the service, of the love, of the humility, of the sacrifice of Christ. John says first, If you want to walk with the God who is light, if you want to enjoy fellowship with God, and if you do, you'll have fellowship with one another, and you'll experience that the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses you of all sin, what you have to do first is agree with Him. And once you agree with Him, because that is by far the most difficult step, to agree that you are a sinner in need of a Savior once you've crossed that bridge and died to yourself so that Jesus can give you life, now spend the rest of your life obeying Him. And what that obedience looks like is just loving other Christians. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The rest of the paragraph just drives that home. Number three, it's repetitive, it's insistent, it's emphatic. Number three, we obey Jesus specifically by loving one another. Verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Every church in conflict where people are calling each other all kinds of names and questioning each other's faith in Christianity should read that verse. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What is John saying? The most self-righteous people you know are also likely to be the most hateful. See, the Gnostics felt superior to everyone they met, and it's really hard if you feel superior to everyone to love anyone because you're just better. You're on a whole other level. Jesus shows you real light. Jesus shows you real love, though God, He became a human being so that He could one day not only stoop to wash His disciples' feet to go to the cross and die for them, The ethic here is simple. He loves us, so if we walk with Him, we will love one another. That's what the Christian life looks like. If He loved me so much, how can I hate you? Even if you're sinful and you don't agree and you won't confess it to me, I can remember of the years and years that I kept God waiting. Very simple ethic. If God loves us, and if we walk with Him consequently, obviously, we'll always Love one another. The proof that we love God is that we love one another. Look over in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Your proof of knowing God is the love you show the believer beside you. Years ago, many years ago now, Sharice and I had just come back to this church family. We had a young man from our church in Mexico who we had discipled who wanted to come spend the summer with us, perfect his English, learns ministry in a different setting. So we very happily welcomed him into our home. Some of you may remember him. His name was Eduardo. He was all summer with us, and I said, listen, I'm going to take a vacation Sunday, and we can go to another church if you want. And there's a lot of famous, well-known churches all over Southern California. I'd like to go to church morning and evening and go to two different kinds of churches. Where would you like to go? And he picked one in the morning and one in the evening. The one in the morning is well-known then and now for their very serious approach to God's Word. It's a holy place. It is filled with reverence. Their view of God is really, really big. I've benefited from their teaching for years. The second church he chose, kind of the opposite of that. A little casual with the Bible, but well known for being very loving. And we had a really interesting experience. We got to this first really large church and Interestingly enough, on the way in and out of church were yelled at by other congregants in the parking lot. All these years later, I still don't know why. I was just standing by my car. We were yelled at, somebody made a somebody gave us a mean look. We tried to take our children, who were these hardened missionary kids who have been in literally over a hundred churches. The environment in their children's ministry space was so grim and harsh, our younger son said, can I just go to church with you? (laughs) He didn't even want to go in there. On our way into church, amazingly, we met someone we didn't know had moved from New England to Southern California and was now a member of that church. We had not seen her in at least five years. Can't believe that you're here. How you doing? When would you move? How's it going? Another friend of hers came by, and she said, these are my friends, Bruce and Sharice Garner. They're wonderful people, but their doctrine, eh. <laughs> Holy smokes. Like I, I, I don't know where I came up short, but, you know, I'll straighten up and regret not wearing a tie, not sure what's going on. And we went into the church service, and everything that was good about that church's reputation was delivered that day in fact i needed pretty much all of my seminary education to understand the sermon it was good it was rich deep at night we went to the other church as we're walking onto the campus someone literally popped out of the bushes and said hey how you doing I don't think I've seen you before, ever been here before. No, no, first time. Where are you from? Huntington Beach. We love Huntington Beach. Thanks for making the drive so good. Amazing. We have coffee, we have cookies, we have lemonade, we have food. Please come this way. Holy moly. I feel like a conquering hero. I feel like I'm in a Super Bowl parade now. We went over to the children's ministry, and believe it or not, this sounds like I'm making it up, but I'm not. There was another person we had not seen in many years that we used to know from our previous stint in Southern California. She was working in children's ministry. And we said, listen, we're going to try to leave our our child here, but this morning we went to another church and he refused to go. She said, you mean him? And pointed inside, he's 30 yard deep in the children's ministry already, having the time of his life. We went to the church service, and every fear that I had ever been told about that church was also delivered. Their approach to the Bible was so casual and so much similar to Dr. Phil than it was to Jesus, (laughs) that I didn't hear anything that wasn't true, but I also didn't hear anything particularly that came from the Bible. Any kind, smart person could have delivered that sermon. And we were basically carried out on a wave of love back to our cars. (laughs) And I thought to myself, then and now, If we could combine the best of those two churches, if we could take a deep reverence for God and an enormous gratitude for who He is and a deep awe of His holiness and an enormous thankfulness for His love and all of that showed up, not in the things we claim to know about God and the people we think we are, but how we actually treat other people, then we would have a great church. That's the church we should be. That's one of the reasons John wrote this letter. Here's what it sounds like in real life. Listen, 1 John 3, verse 16. Read this with me. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Let's pray. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I'm specifically inviting you to agree with God about your sin and ask Him to save you. Just straight up, right from the shoulder, just like that. If you've been minimizing your sin, denying your sin, putting off making peace with God, the Bible has told you the truth, and your conscience has been telling you the truth as well. If you will agree with God about your sin, He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will give you Jesus as your advocate. He'll give you His own life. If you don't have Him, I'm inviting you to call out to Jesus right now and ask Him to be your Savior. And Christian, if you do know all this and you have all this, remember, the proof is not in knowledge. That was a Gnostic belief. The proof is real knowledge, proven, by the love, not that you claim for God, but the love you practically actually give other people. If you've been less than loving, if you've been claiming Christ but not acting like a Christian, now is a good time for you to agree with God about that sin give you the virtue of giving your life away to others the way Jesus sacrificially, eternally, importantly gave His life away for yours. Jesus, may it be true. I pray if there's a single person here who does not know you, that at this moment they would turn to you in complete agreement with you about their need and ask for your forgiveness so that you may grant them lovingly, freely, salvation. And Lord, for those of us who have known you and loved you and enjoyed you for years, let us show it to the world, not in what we claim about you, but the way we love others. We pray that in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint says... Amen. God bless you folks. Love you. Go with God's grace.